Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Today's episode, we're featuring the lovely Nigel Baker, who is a world-leading agile coach and one of the world's leading certified scrum trainers. A very early adopter of agile, Nigel has trained thousands and thousands of people in scrum and agile, including Chris. Nigel is a great speaker and a lot of fun to talk to. This is a really great chat and we think you're going to really enjoy this one so without further ado here is Nigel Baker my name's Nigel Baker I am an agile coach certified scrum trainer and professional troublemaker (laughs) professional troublemaker I love that so I mean agile coach you mentioned when we were getting set up that you've been doing this for 20 years. Pretty much, yeah. How did that start? It's a long story. That I'll try and give the short version. I've been involved in computers my entire life. Uh-huh. So my father had computers basically before I was born in the late 70s. He was in the industry. So he was doing things like instrumentation. And I don't mean like tubers. I mean like thermometers, measuring devices, all serious sort of engineering stuff. Plotters before printers. Mm. So the plotters to print with the little pen, all that sort of stuff. So he had computers driving these devices. So I literally grew up around computers. So I've always been a huge fan. Always wanted to be involved with computers in a job in some way. And eventually, when I became semi-adult, I left university and became a software developer and was very content with that. Hmm. That was my career aim, what I wanted to do, and I was doing it. And I was very happy. And then, as you know, life goes... And so we were just working on a project and it wasn't going very well. Behind the times, not delivering anything of value, getting told off. And one of the guys on the project, John McNeil, I'll even name John. John said, hey, there's this thing we could do called Scrum that may help the situation. I've been on a training course recently. It may be kind of cool. We could give it a go. And we're all like, okay, sounds reasonable. I seem to remember some conversations around it being very popular. Mm. Turns out that wasn't true. <laughs> Turns out John had been on, I think, like the second or third scrum course ever. Wow. And came back and told us about it. But it turns out ignorance is a great defense. So when you don't know something's <laughs> new and controversial, it isn't. So we did it and went really well. We looked really good. So we did it some more. It looked really good. And so I became scrum master of that team. It was really rather lovely. And then about a year down the line, someone said to me, the company, we used to work for British Telecom. Mm. So BT, we're going big with Agile. We want to take it on. Would you like to become an Agile coach? Like travel around and teach people this stuff. And I said, is it more money? (laughs) And they said, oh, yeah, definitely. We get pay rides. And so I thought, well, I'd love to be an Agile coach. I've always wanted to be an Agile coach. (laughs) And that's how I sort of fell into this. Did it for that company for a couple of years and then left. (laughs) And did it for myself for the rest of time. And it's been um, an interesting journey. You see lots of cool things, lots of just things and everything in between the two. (laughs) So that must have been quite extreme because I was going to ask you, where did you learn about Agile? You know, so I guess if that's come from the second or third actual scrum course, that's pretty close to the foundation of the whole thing. Yeah. So I'm friends with a lot of the manifesto authors. Mm. I've known a lot of the birthday for a long time because the community was so small. Mm. If you wanted to learn about it, you spoke to the people who came up with it. There wasn't really anything else. 
It was very much a movement to begin with. It was very much a group of people with common interests moving forward. So you went directly to those people when you yeah. hit a block in the actual implementation of it, I guess. I don't know how much I can say about this, but I will say it. <laughs> Jeff Watts, who's my first scrum master, my best friends, now a very famous Agile author. We would like be, oh, Jeff, what do we do? And Jeff would go, I don't know, let's go speak to Ken Schwaber, you know, one of the creator of Scrum. And so he would yeah. go ask him. But of course, they hadn't done any of this stuff either. So British Telecom was one of the first big enterprise companies to try this on Earth, really. Wow. There was no learning. So people mm. would say things to us, and we think, oh, others are doing it. And it was kind of just made up. And we would try it, and then other people would take it from us and go, oh, that's a great idea. Huh. And so we were sort of putting the train tracks down. Mm. But we didn't know at the time. And so I was just having this conversation, I think yesterday, someone's using something, which I don't want to badmouth, so I'm not going to name it on here, but a particular famous agile technique. And they're talking about a particular agile method in it. Like, this is best practice. And I thought, I'm pretty sure we invented that. And I'm pretty sure we gave up on it after a few months because it wasn't very good. <laughs> the rumour goes round the world before the truth gets its boots on. You know? That's the general problem with social media that we've got at the moment, isn't yeah. it? The rumour making it round the world. Mm. I mean, how did you go about getting buy-in for something like that in BT? <laughs> I mean... Well, let's put it this way. I just saw on LinkedIn someone getting a job of an agile coach at BT. Mm. So that can tell you exactly how much buy-in there was nearly 20 years ago. None at all. It sort of fell apart. Mm. There was traction at the start. One of the senior leaders came in and said, I'm joining the company. We want agile. But they never defined what they actually meant. And so there's always been the rumor that, did they really mean like agile? Or did they mean like agile you know do they mean like go work in leads for two years or did they mean we want to empower our teams and we're never quite sure because british telecom is a great company by the way it's mm. much better today but when i was there nearly 20 years ago it was kind of like the kremlin it was very byzantine as a company so you were like <laughs> never quite sure who owned what how decisions were made decisions were just like pop out and so you're always trying to read the wounds in a big company. So a lot of our work was spent really cutting edge change management stuff, the educational scrum, doing this stuff, but also trying to just persuade people to try new ideas. Mm. These days, the boss will say, you are all going agile, tough luck. And that's horrible. But at least mm. they have the permission. In our days, we're always trying to find the oddballs, the misfits, who were struggling under what was currently going on. And so we're kind of desperate for a new idea. <laughs> they were like, I don't care what you're selling me. I need that because at the moment my life's hell. And did those results immediately speak for themselves then? Yeah, yeah, they did at the times. Because you have to remember how bad software engineering is today, let mm. alone 15, 20 years ago. Like that's always been the problem with agility, which is mm. really bad agile and scrum is still better than what people used to do. <laughs> so they're like oh brilliant this is better and you're like but it's so rubbish you could be so much nicer and better as an organization because half bait is half bait but it's mm. just so much better and so that's always been the one benefit for me with this stuff it hasn't been like in traditional change where you have to go through lots of pain and anxiety to get to the promised land at the other side of the change a lot of this stuff's mm. quite quick win and quite evident so when people give it a bit of a go they're like oh wow i is doing some good stuff already so these days, do you spend more of your time focused on the training aspect? Because yeah. obviously you have your yeah. own organization. In fact, you trained me about 10 years ago. Do you spend your time mostly with the training side of things or do you go into organizations and help them with the transformations as well? So I still call myself an agile coach, mm -hmm. but you are right. A lot of it gets involved in training these days. And I really hate it. I love being in an organization, helping people do this stuff. But when Agile became big, mm. people saw in their eyes, ka the money symbols, and then a lot of people jumped in. 
And so there's lots of people out there who are agile coaches mm-hmm. who aren't agile and they can't coach. And they're in companies <laughs> doing this stuff. And so for someone like me to come in at a higher day rate for a few days, it's a difficult sell. Yeah, yeah. I always thought the training stuff would die off after a couple of years, you know, mm. and the coaching would be the long term what I would do. But actually, it's been the opposite for me. A lot of times now, the coaching stuff's very commoditized and very sort of, you're a resource, we'll get you for six months. Mm. You will tell us what we want to hear, because <laughs> we don't want to change really, but we'll keep paying you if you do that. Very sort of unchanging, unhelpful anti-patterns. And people like me end up doing training courses. So the training course has been a great way to get access to lots of people. A bit of a Trojan course. <laughs> people think it's going to be about scrum, but actually it's about organizational change and coaching and skills and those sort of things when they come and actually start doing it. I love that Trojan course. How long have we been using that one for? <laughs> no idea. So again, this is another problem I've got. So I do lots of presentations at conferences and talks and stuff. And people always say, well, that's a great line. When did you come up with that? And I said, now, or maybe like a week ago. But if you hadn't mentioned it, I wouldn't have remembered it. So the reason why I quite like being a trainer and quite like being a coach mm. is I discovered late in life, I like attention. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the thing to say, but I like talking in front of people. I don't have a fear about it. Mm. But that took me till I was about 21, 22. Mm. I basically did a presentation at a graduate program at British Telecom. They made us do a five-minute presentation introducing ourselves, and they gave us an OHP. Do you remember those overhead projectors? <laughs> Very tentatively, yes. <laughs> 90s, mate, 90s. So I wrote on this. I just did this five-minute bit of shtick. And at the end of it, I got a round of applause and a clap. And I thought, oh, I quite like that. (laughs) I like working with people. I like people. And so the big issue for me with COVID's been that lack of in-person contact. I found that quite painful in real life. Yeah. How have you managed to carry on whilst you've been doing this in lockdown? Are you still doing Zoom training? Or Yeah, yeah. That's been really interesting, actually, because online training was banned by the Scrum Alliance. Because basically, Agile is about sitting together and working together. And so yeah, doing yeah. some sort of commoditized online training would be hypocritical in the extreme. Okay. So it's always been, no, we go in person, we make relationships. We're not here to exploit. We're here to expand, explore. We're here to help people help themselves. So you go in there and build the rapport and work with them. Don't just have 100 people on a Zoom call. But COVID happened and the world just stopped. And so the scrum lines very cleverly went, okay, what's the least worst thing we could do? We can't make things better with COVID, but what can we do to support people? And they pivoted this stuff online. Mm. They said, okay, if you're in a country where you can't meet, do it online with fewer people, loads of limits around it to make sure it's not like a money-making scheme, but really limiting it, but to give people the chance to actually learn. Because a lot of companies started spending training budget when lockdown happened, because they had some money, and they're like, well, the people are sat doing nothing. (laughs) Might as well give them some training. That was quite good. Here's the thing. I've got used to doing this type of thing online, but I still prefer in-person stuff. Mm. Because it's hard to build a relationship, hard to build rapport, hard to actually find out what someone really feels. Or a tiny little Zoom picture, you know, sort of <laughs> pixelated, trying to work out, are they grumpy or are they disinterested? I like doing these. I like having the ability to reach people. Mm. Do I want to go traveling around the world again? See, I did it 15 years, like four days a week on the road, 15 years. That's a Mm. long time not to see your kids, your wife, your friends. But it's better. (laughs) It's better if you can sit down and chat with people over a sandwich. Have a conversation over a nice juicy bun, nice big iced bun with cherries on top, maybe some drizzling of cinnamon, perhaps. All right, I think we're going off off track. You're dribbling a little bit there. (laughs) 
<laughs> this, this is the problem. The one good side about travel is the restaurants you know, in the evening, but you can go and have a nice cake or a nice piece of food. Do you know what? You're not the only person we've interviewed that has based their experience around restaurants, because we mm. spoke to Auden just about that last week, I think, or one of the previous episodes. But you've got to take pleasure where you can. Absolutely. I once heard the quote, no good can happen to a married man in a bar. There's a thin root of happiness. There's lots of dangers in that experience. And I always took that kind to heart. So I wouldn't go sit in a bar on my own in another country. I would go to the restaurant, have some food, go back to the hotel room. But of course, it means what have you got to look forward to in the evening? You know, the food became an attractor. (laughs) To be honest, there's a downside to being an agile coach, which is basically you're kind of spending your own goodwill on other people. So I put a bit of weight on when I was traveling. I used to be quite slim. I got a bit heavier when I traveled around the world. But luckily, after lockdown happened, you know, we had to stay at home. So I couldn't go to all these restaurants and stuff. So it's been brilliant. I've put on three stone. (laughs) So it turns out all my excuses as a coach, oh, I've eaten a bit too much, but it's because I'm in a hotel on my own. Turned out to be nonsense. Mm. (laughs) Turned out to be just like, I like eating buns with the icing on the top. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've all had that same problem. Has the Scrum Alliance changed its sort of view on sort of co-location then as well? Because we know, I think, frankly, that co-located teams are better, but we have to organise them all around the world. Does that mean that we can actually put a bit more focus on that sort of stuff now so that we can try and deal with teams that are spread yeah. out across the globe. Micro has always been dislocated teams. Worked for a telecommunications company. So like the first few projects were co-located, but most of the time were spread across continents. Mm. So there's always been loads of tricks and tactics, but they're all based on the fundamental principle of make people feel like they're together. Mm. Build that sense of feeling like you're working together. Because mm. co-location is really an emotional feeling more than a physical distance. The trouble is building that. Kent Beck, who's one of the inventors of extreme programming, one of the Agile Manifesto authors, he recently mm-hmm. came up with a model called Explore, Expand, Extract, okay. which is basically just a way to try and explain some work is explore, there's no real return yet, you're discovering, you're trying to find stuff out. Expand is when you sort of found a thing and it's quite nice and now you're expanding it, you're taking that idea to new areas, a new context, you're growing it, and then extract is now it's a mine. You know, you're just digging out the resource, you're not going anywhere new, and you're just extracting content, extracting value. And what I've been feeling is that projects and products that were in extract, something like COVID didn't affect them that much. Mm -hmm. They've already pre-built all their relationships, all their business models, all their ideas, all their context. It's all laid down. They're just like doing it from home now. Mm -hmm. But the people who are trying to explore or trying to expand where they need that crossover, they need that osmotic learning, they seem to be the ones that are struggling a little bit. Because all the energy's faded, you know, all that impetus of working from home's faded, that's a bit stickier. So in terms of your thing about distributed teams, yeah. is I feel, again, something similar. The guys in Explore maybe in Expand, the people there may struggle more working purely from remote. They may have benefited from being together at the start, to be honest. Do you have any techniques or suggestions for how to crack that nut? Because there's going to be a lot of people listening who have that sort of problem. It's really interesting. So I was asked to do a presentation on this from an Irish non-profit mm. about collaboration tools. Like how do we collaborate? And I found an article from 20 years ago, <laughs> from the start of Agile, basically, from the manifesto authors, Alistair Coburn. He was talking about Agile tools. And actually, it was more about collaboration than tools. He said, OK, people talk about tools. I'm working remotely. What 
tool do I use? Do I buy Jira or buy Atlassian? Do I buy TFS, buy them? Do I buy Virgil? And I'm always saying, well, that's just one of six things. The technology is very important, but it's one mm. thing. The other things are things like process. There's no point having a great tool if you don't have human processes to use the tool. Things mm. like facilitation, things like just understanding how we're going to work together, team rules. Otherwise, the tool's valueless. Physical tools. But a lot of times, physical tools are not available in a remote setting. So what do we do? How do we make the virtual feel physical rather than take the physical and just make it virtual? You know, how do I create mm. interactivity? How do I create tangibility, the touch feeling of this experience? And then there's loads of other stuff. Like we've asked people to work together successfully, yet we haven't given them the tools and structures to collaborate effectively. Like an online task board isn't good enough. What about the lighting? You know, what about your broadband connection? But you know, it's all these factors that feed into collaboration, feed into building that rapport and that relationship and i think a lot of what people are doing out there at the moment is oh we're remote i will buy a technology software tool to help me do that when in fact they need to put in place all these other things physical tools environmental tools process tools mental models mm. you may remember from the course hasn't changed the course has but not this <laughs> yes and the improv idea of building mm. on each other's ideas, but actually giving people methods and approaches and mindsets to actually help them work together. And that sort of stuff you all get for free when you're sat together. Yeah. You know? But you've got to pay for when you're not. And you've got to be more deliberate about it when you're not. I think the yes and is a really useful concept, actually. I went on after being trained by yourself whilst I was at the BBC to working at Amazon, and that is very much an and culture where they do like to use that sort of improv technique to move on to the next thing. I think that helps extraordinarily. I've got so many questions, so many different routes I want to go down with this. But first off, how many people do you think you've trained? Oh, I'm definitely not the most prolific because I tend to do small courses, but mm. I would say thousands. Probably. I've been training people certified since 2007. Mm -hmm. I've been training people without certifications since 2005. Mm. So that's 15 years. I'm not collect to look at the number, but I would definitely say <laughs> thousands of people, definitely thousands of people. And it gets weird because the community started so small and expanded so quickly. So mm -hmm. I know someone, actually a good friend of mine, and she was coached by someone I coached. Oh, wow. That was really kind of cool when it all started. So the network expanded rapidly, but people still knew each other. You still had connection tissues. These days, it's got so large, there are many people out there I have no idea about. <laughs> it's sad because it used to be, I could literally have someone ring me up and say, oh, we've got blogs applying for a job. Do you know them? And I'll say, oh, yeah, I know them. They're great. Brilliant coach. Mm. And these days, like, hmm, I have to go look on LinkedIn and see if I know them or not. See who they were coached by, presumably. But yeah, that tends to be it. <laughs> like, what's their lineage? Like a thoroughbred horse. <laughs> and so do you still focus purely on Scrum, or have you started to diversify into some of the scaled frameworks? Or um, that's, that's triggered a response. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the scaled stuff is, how can I say it nicely? Lies. <laughs> and basically, they're learning on you. So some of the scaled frameworks out there, I'm thinking particularly of SAFE, they keep updating it. Right? Mm. which shows that the first version wasn't right. Yes. And they learned off of your career that it wasn't right. So there are people out there who would have followed their advice, lost their jobs, and then they've gone, oh, it didn't work. Let's try something new. I'm not a therapist, but Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, <laughs> right? The main thing as an agile coach, you shouldn't make it worse. You know, mm. that's the worst thing you could do, you know. And my fear with some of those methods are, I'll give you this. 15 or so years ago, I invented something called the Nigel scale, right? Now, the Nigel scale was a joke 
we were discussing in the Scrum Alliance a problem that scaling is now happening, mm. which is what is actually core? What's fundamental? What's good? What's like nice to have? And what's bad? So back about this time, it would have been about 2008-ish, mm-hmm. we were trying to write an exam for the Scrum Master training course. And so we rapidly realized, hang on a minute, what we think Scrum is, everyone's got a different interpretation. <laughs> There's loads of books, but they're all saying something different. So we need to get some sort of clarification here. When we talk about Scrum itself, that's kind of like talking about the bread on a sandwich. The bread on the sandwich is important, but it's not the key thing, is it? It's not like the fundamental. You don't mm. go, well, the filling was rubbish, but this bread, mmm. You always let the filling of the sandwich is the key thing. And so how much should we talk about bread and how much should we talk about sandwich filling? So I came up with this Nigel scale. Say, so look, I've been using it for years. I hadn't. I made it up that day. Broke it down to three points. Nigel scale one, things at a core. Things are fundamental. You've got to do them or you're doomed. Like a surgeon washes their hands. Yeah. That's not optional. That's not like, oh, I don't believe in bacteria. Viruses were invented by Big Pharma. It's like, shut up. <laughs> like, wash your hands. Or like, you can have your own opinions. You can't have your own facts. So that's core stuff. There's stuff that we've got to do. If we don't do it, we're all in real trouble. Problem is, in real life, most of the things aren't that. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. like good things, which means, hey, it works for me. It may work for you. May's doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. So this may work for lots of people. Doesn't guarantee it's going to work for you. So mm. a good organization, you're sort of contextual with those good practices. You inspect and adapt. You run experiments in your own context to make sure what fits for you and what doesn't. And then there's bad stuff. It's just bad. Like, again, never say never. It may work for you, but there's a big pile of bodies of people who have tried that mm. idea. And you want to be another skull in that pile. So that's Nigel scale three, one, two, three. Right? And so this was quite interesting at the time. A lot of people still use it in the training community someone used just the other day about splitting up core good and bad and understanding Mm -hmm. what people often get wrong is they confuse different and wrong Mm. right so they confuse variation is error or they think alignment is core and some of those scaling approaches are built fundamentally on confusing those three ideas core good bad wrapping them all up in a bundle and selling it to you so here we go here's the answer and there is an answer in there, but not the answer. And there's mm. also bad answers all wrapped in. And are you good enough to know the difference between the two? And most companies can't. How would you go about starting on a scaled approach? I thought I wouldn't. Not because I don't like <laughs> scaling. It's just people work badly together when you put hundreds together. Mm. And so I would start small whilst the problem is small. Mm. So as I'm building like some huge system, the fundamental core I would build with a small team to begin with. And once you start getting a system that can actually take other people on it, then you start adding people slowly as a strategy, you know, mm. breaking teams, building them up, growing them gradually. And as you're growing, then you start layering on process because mm. a small team doesn't need loads of extra process and you have to do it experiment led. So in the concept of Knevin from complexity science, they talk about probes, probe, sense, respond, run experiments to find the right direction to go in. Mm. So this thing sort of evolving organically, like a plant growing. Mm. And as you know, as plants grow, they need different things. Like a little one needs loads of watering, a medium one needs a stick to make sure it doesn't fall over. <laughs> you know, a big bush needs pruning, well, bushes outside need a constant cutting back. Mm. So it's different mental models for different approaches. So that's what I would do. And it could end up looking like safe, or it could end up looking like something else. Mm. Now, there is one scaling approach in Agile called LESS, large-scale Scrum, which is kind of the most aligned to that philosophy. So it has like a very small core and lots of experiments you could run. If I had to pick one, that would be the one I'd pick 
because it's like the closest to that conversation. But I don't feel any of them for sale at the moment have got that conversation sorted. But just remember, these scaled methods, who's the customer? I'm going to ask you that. Who's the customer of these scaled approaches? Well, it's going to be the business that's got the money to pay for them, presumably. Mm-hmm. But who in that business? The man with the purse strings <laughs> or woman. Yeah, some senior <laughs> boss. So what's that senior boss actually want? Do they want large-scale change? Do they want to empower their staff? Mm. Or do they want the status quo just to be a bit quicker? I think this is always a very interesting question to ask as to who is always the customer. Sam and I, we also have a new show, anyone who's listening in if you haven't heard it yet, but we often talk about social media and who's the customer in that regard. And it's definitely not the person that's actually using the application. It's slightly different. You are the product in that instance. It's the advertisers that are the customer. And I think you're on point here. It's the person in the business who probably doesn't want that much change. Who's probably buying that. And so their aim is to keep those people happy, not necessarily improve the organization. Mm. It's kind of like optimizing for the wrong customer, really. It's not optimizing for the end customer to make the end customer happier. It's optimizing for some internal customer, sub-optimization in the lean world. I would love to be the person who had all the answers for it. I would love to write a book on it, but it's just there's so much out there. There's lots of people selling stuff, Mm. lots of people talking like me now, but not many people listening. Mm. hearing what the world's actually saying about these things. And I think that's sad. Well, I was very interested in getting your opinion on that because I've probably built a very large portion of my career on trying to help organizations to deliver agility at scale. Yeah. And I'm going to say agility at scale because I've never followed any framework. Mm. It's, I think, probably quite closely aligned to what you're talking about, of understanding what the core is. When I was at Amazon, I was challenged, essentially, with delivering a project that involved about 500 people across three different continents. And, I mean, this was like 2012. I was probably about three years after being trained by yourself, and I didn't know of any scaled agile framework. Yeah. So I kind of made one up. Yeah, didn't exist at the time. <laughs> and again, people complained about that. People were saying, well, how do I do it at scale? Because the mm. conversation of run experiments and was too difficult for them. Mm. But you also have to remember, there is another side to me as an agile coach, which is Frankenstein ran experiments and learnt. Doesn't mean (laughs) he created something wonderful, depending on how you look at it. That's the other problem, which is when we are doing these experiments and learning, it's very easy to blow everything up. Mm. And so there has to be some guide rails out there. Not templates, that's the wrong word. Literally, guide rails. Say, okay, like, anything in here is great. Here, Mm. nah, here, nah, but in here is fine, in the middle. And actually getting that balance is hard. I've written a blog post recently, 12,500 words. It's like one of those insane people blog posts you hear about after they commit a crime (laughs) and you go online and find this huge queen (laughs) of nonsense. But it's all about trying to basically communicate a fundamental problem that everyone has. Not sure it's just an agile thing, but especially in the agile space, people are communicating in 2D snapshots. They say, okay, here's a thing, it is good. (laughs) Or here is a thing, it is bad. Mm. And in fact, life is ing, changing, transforming, agilifying. It's the process of the journey is what's interesting. A great example in the agile world is the technical planning poker, right? Some people love it, some people hate it. Who's right? Well, they both are. It often depends on the team's experience, Mm. depends on whether the technique helps them or not. And I don't think enough of us are communicating that or communicating the journey. What I think is interesting, we said before about running experiments and finding a shape and scale, Mm -hmm. that's going to have to be continuous. Because once you find a shape, you'll invent basically small flowers. You go, ah, this is the right shape. And then you add 200 more people and you're like, oh no, now that's the wrong (laughs) shape. We need to run experiments again. And that idea of experimenting and learning and safe to fail, 
I'm not sure if companies yet have a good appetite for that. Mm. They would say, oh, you failed, Chris, get out. <laughs> like, we'll buy someone else in, rather than realising that's an inexorable part of complex work and an inevitable result of trying to innovate and discover and deliver great results. Mm. I wrote this blog post trying to capture this idea of changing, transforming, understanding how processes decay over time like as teams get more mature or processes may evolve like a good cheese <laughs> true story there's some techniques in the agile world that if you did with a new team you would all get fired yeah but if you yeah. all know what you're doing and you're really cooking on gas the techniques could be great catalysts to make you genuinely amazing and the final one for me is the crossover points of these things which is okay that technique's degenerating this technique's becoming viable how do i go from one to the other mm. do i just swap on a monday or do we run them in parallel? Do we hybridize techniques? There's loads of ways of thinking about in the changing of organizations. Mm. And again, most organizations, the organizational design, photograph. The layout of management, snapshots. It's all two-dimensional. Somehow capturing that third dimension in what we do, I hope is going to be the future of agility. Damn it, I hope it's going to be the future of businesses because I can't see what we'll do otherwise. We'll just keep collapsing and creating businesses and never actually learn and evolve them. I think part of what you're talking about is that you've got to try and find a way of allowing the teams in the organization to have their own ability to develop. But I suppose you do need to not necessarily keep control of the whole, but be able to observe the whole. How would you suggest people manage to do that within teams where some teams are really passionate about the process and some teams are just apathetic about the process? And actually, you know, some teams talk about the overhead of Scrum being too much. Yeah, most of what people think is Scrum isn't. <laughs> so that's the first thing I do. I say, well, oh, we don't like story points. Great, not part of Scrum, don't do them. Velocity, not Scrum, <laughs> don't do it. There's loads you can cut back if it genuinely isn't helping you. Mm. There's a large lump of good practice masquerading as Scrum, let's say, outside of an industry. Mm. I tend to talk about coaching stances. So there's loads of different ways a coach can coach. And by the way, there's hundreds of different versions online if you go looking. Like sports coaches have different language to therapists. But the one I use, I stole off my wife, who's a trained teacher. So I stole hers and added a few things to it. And I sort of break it down sort of five ways a coach can engage. So it depends on the situation. Classically, what most agile coaches do, they don't coach, they consult. Like I'm doing now, telling. They'll say, do this, <laughs> don't do that, get off the wall, don't touch that knife. <laughs> like a parent on a small <laughs> child. That's a legitimate model. As you said, with a naive team about to do something career-ending, do not put all that data on a publicly available website. That was where you have tell or consult as a start. However, there are many other stances. Another one is like coaching, the actual genuine coaching stance, which is you've got the answers, I haven't. So my job as a coach is to help you find your answer, not give you my answer. Maybe I can guide you to your answer, but mm. I can't be imposing my own opinion. So a lot of teams don't want either stance. They just want the other classic three ones, which is show me how it's done. Mm. Character, be a good role model. So rather than tell people what to do, just show the right behavior through what you do in real life. And they'll pick it up. Collaborate. Work as a colleague. Don't be some big magician. Just be, hey, I'm on your side. We're in it together. Let's find an answer together. I haven't got all the answers. You haven't. Let's chat about it. Let's just talk as friends. Yeah, yeah. And the final one is keep your mouth shut. Silence. <laughs> True story. Sometimes as a coach, just keep your mouth shut and let people come up with their own answers. Because people are quite clever. Just give them some space. And they'll mm. come up with something better you could ever come up with. But that's hard, especially people like me who love chatting. I was going to ask you whether you had difficulty with that. Uh <laughs> oh, so much.
<laughs> to your point, there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about Agile. Like, How do we go about re-educating people who feel like they've been burned by the process? Yeah, so there's loads of bad Agile and Scrum out there that's hurt people and really damaged people, the dark mm. side of the Scrum. And it's not just Scrum, it's any sort of bad agility. Mm. The trouble is, when you tell people about things, they have this filter between you and the information, this perception mm. bias, so they hear the bits they like. As a coach, what I tend to try and do is just show them, this is how we like it to be. This is what it really is, not what it's been to you. So I show them a better way. And sometimes that's enough. They go, ah, I never knew that was something we've made up. I thought that was what it's supposed to be. Mm. Alistair Coburn came up with a martial arts metaphor years ago. Shuhari. I don't know anything about martial arts, by the way. So I'm just going to say <laughs> what people have told me. But Shu is you follow it slavishly. You do the moves they've taught you. Like the Karate mm -hmm. Kid. You ever see the Karate Kid? Wax on, wax off. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. You don't know why you're doing the moves, but you do them to pick up knowledge. That's Shu. Ha is you're like a black belt. Now you understand why you do all these moves. You start sort of pushing at the boundaries a bit. And Ri, Shu Ha Ri, is you are Bruce Lee. You are the martial art, right? What you do is martial art, and what martial art is what you do. You mm -hmm. and the method are just inexorably linked. So by the very nature, everything you say and do is what it is, because that's in your deep soul. And as you already described, a lot of people are shoe and think they're re. Ah. They could be. They could have transcended mm. and become amazing, but... <laughs> I try and make sure they know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And just always explain why and how so they can then make better choices on that. And they go, okay, I get it. We're doing that through ignorance. We're not doing that through knowledge. Okay. I think it's interesting. I've been working with an organization relatively recently who have been burned by the end of the process, right? So they're not very keen on sprint reviews or what they're actually doing in retrospectives. And largely that seems to be because rather than attacking the, okay, how do we improve our own process? They would actually rather disengage in the process. When you've got a team that's in that scenario where they're starting to feel disengaged, how do you go about building that enthusiasm? What I try and do is take it back narrower the retro review of the most important meetings in scrum mm. bar none they're the most important ones in the end agile is do something stop and look at what you did that's kind of the skeleton and so mm. they're not looking at what they did we're in real trouble but people turn it off because one people don't fix things that get brought up so i as a team member go look this is a real problem and management just pat me on the head and say oh bad luck so of course i'm disengaged or the reviews get treated like judgment like the roman emperors you know we who are about to die <laughs> salute thee. And the Roman emperors go, you have failed us. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and so the key thing, those final meetings are about learning, not judgment. So there are processes you can do there, like there's rules. You can say, okay, no blame culture. But what I would tend to do is take it right down to the smallest group and say, okay, just us as a team, we retro, no one else, just us, we have a chat as a team. Review, let's just bring us and the product owner in to begin with. No stakeholders, we want the stakeholders, but not today. We'll bring mm -hmm. them in today and just build up that trust between us so we can show you da -da, something and the product owner can talk to us like human beings and generally we can discover the right thing. For me, anything that comes up in review, I like. Mm -hmm. It's not a blame, you didn't do anything wrong. They've discovered more by seeing your product. You know, they've gone, oh God, I don't want that. That's not your fault. They've now looked at it and realized they don't want it. That's good news. Let's get something new built. As I try and build that culture, I try and take it small. I try and make it safe. And by psychologically safe, we don't mean no one mentions bad things. We just mean bad things get mentioned, but you're never a bad thing. Mm. It's never about you. It's the process. It's the system. A good person gets defeated by a bad system every time. What we're trying to do is not improve you as a human being. You're great. 
We're just trying to improve the mechanics and the system around you, both product and process. That's why we're doing Take it really small. And once they're mm-hmm. happier and trusty, then we can broaden it out again and bring in those stakeholders into that review. We're getting more and more into the detail now, which is where we're heading, right? Uh, <laughs> into the weeds. Into the weeds. We're getting into the weeds now. So we talked about story pointing and that not being part of Scrum. Now, I still have my Agile Bear poker cards around somewhere. We still use them. They're very useful in the right context. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you around the estimation size Mm -hmm. of things. I took away from your training session how important estimates were and actually measuring actuals. And I dived into making sure that I was reviewing actuals with my teams. I was working at the BBC at the time, but I subsequently used it at Love Film. And we were able to be so accurate with our estimation. It was incredible. What's your perspective on the importance of estimation? Because I think it's changed over the years because I'm hearing more agile coaches these days not put any focus on estimation and put little focus on velocity as it happens. And that ties into burn down as well. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. Well, all these things have been abused. (laughs) When someone claims something's foolproof, they are massively underestimating the ingenuity of fools. And so what's just happened is velocity, points, and burndowns, people with bad behaviours have got hold of them and abused them. Mm. And so a lot of coaches have said, okay, it's the tool's fault. Missing the point that it's the person wielding the tool who's done the damage. And so some people swapped onto cycle time measuring from the lean mm. concept, cycle time and lead time. And now that's getting abused because <laughs> villains are going to villain. What's happening is they're treating any metric like a target or like a commitment or like a guarantee. And mm. it just blows everything up. And so I get a lot of value from estimating because, one, I don't want to overspend the budget halfway through. So having some idea of costs and where we're going and how much work it just helps us work together. These days, I track sprint backlog estimates a lot less, mainly because there are other things you can do. If you get your backlog items smaller, you don't need to go so much detail in backlogs Mm. unless your team's new. So you don't need to go so much lower. But I still use points in many teams. But there are other options. Some people have gone in the no estimates way, which is just chop everything into even size and count. <laughs> which, by the way, is estimating. And I point that out. The no estimates movement hashtag is actually estimating. It's estimating how many it can do after counting last time. So it did five last time, going to do five next time. And that's quite yeah. nice. Some teams don't need the task breakdown. They know their product so well. They don't actually need to break it out to help them do the work. So just working on small stories is viable. But... Personally, if I was with a new team, I would still point, I would still velocity, I would still break down into tasks if they needed all those helps to get going. But I'll also be aware those products can fade if you don't need them anymore. And so how do you then go and use all of those techniques to be able to give back to the business leaders an indication of when we might think this thing happens? Because I think that's where it seems to fall down a little bit in the community. Yeah, whereas context is king. So a lot Mm. of the no estimates people at the Kanban guys are doing steady state small feature product development. Mm. So it's not like, oh, I'm launching at Christmas, here comes the Olympics. It's like dot releases on something that's already out there. So it's just bubbling along nicely. Oh, here's another upgrade, here's another upgrade. And for that, it's completely fine. Mm. If you're going to do something big and unknown and scary, it is harder to use those techniques to do it because you have to break the work down too much. Having said that, even with things like points, it's going to get a lot weaker quicker because it's Mm. so big and amorphous. And so there's no perfect way to handle that big environment, I feel. It's just dangerous doing a big product. You need to start small and build it up. How do you deal with taking the abstract, though? Point is a different size in every team. Oh, yeah, but you can convert it back. So that's Mm. where velocity comes in. You're doing 200 Mm -hmm. points a sprint, and you've got 2,000 in your backlog. Well, 2,000 divided by 200, 
10 sprints ish. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't say sprint to them either because they'll go splint. What the hell's a splint? But if they're two <laughs> weeks and there's 10 of them, 20 weeks. That's what I would say. Mm. And then so I'll translate back into human. That's a big <laughs> issue with Agile. A lot of people talk jargon, which is great between mm. us, but they talk jargon to the business audience. Now, if you're in a tech company, it's okay because they speak the same language. But if you're like in a legal firm, <laughs> the lawyer has no idea what you're talking about. You may need to be able to speak the business's language. That's a very good point because my career has been entirely in tech uh, as a Sam. So I think we get the jargon. But it's interesting you mention about it being used, a lawyer, for example, or actually before we were getting onto the call, uh, we talked about your building project and tricking the builders into surreptitious scrum. Uh, uh, coaching, <laughs> coaching. Is it? Coaching, tricking, you know. There's two really <laughs> interesting arguments here. One is the world of tech is infecting other worlds. In a mm. law firm, if you're building some law website of some form, the tech and the lawyers have to work together to build this product. You know, they don't understand it. They've got to work side by side. But also the other thing is that technology techniques are invading the other worlds Mm. i've been working with a toy company using scrum to develop toy prototypes and i'm doing my house with scrum and so those techniques are creeping out into other spaces but this way we've got to be even more careful because remember these things are core in what context oh well anything technology based i've been in fire alarms with this you know car alarms and now toys we're starting Mm. to get very far away from where the original patterns were spotted and do they work yes But that's when the rules start changing. And so what we're seeing in the Agile space at the moment is some of the lead figures of it, because they want to expand these things to other areas for whatever reasons. (laughs) There was a mime there, listeners. There was a mime. You will not know what that mime was, but you can probably guess. They want to expand it to other areas. So they sort of water down the advice. But all that watering down does makes that idea more applicable elsewhere. Mm. But it makes that idea worse here. My worry is we're going to end up with agile homeopathy, which is so watered down. <laughs> Everyone agrees with it. It's like, oh, you could do agile on anything at school. But the trouble is it's so watered down, it's to offer no value. And so there's a balancing act between that. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you think there are things that it just doesn't work with, agile? Yeah, I wouldn't want a learning model if we're not going to learn. Mm. Manufacturing, for instance, you're building 10,000 widgets. You've built a million of these widgets before. You don't really need a feedback loop to check every widget and go, hmm, is that widget the same as the last 4 million widgets? You can statistically sample every million, you know. You don't need to sample every single one. And so Mm. that's all constant inspect and adapt empirical study of an empowered team. Why would you empower the guys on the production line if they're doing exactly the same thing every time? Now, I know in Lean, they do empower. So there's interesting conversations there in like complex Mm. product development on manufacturing. But generally, I can easily see some places where they call it in Kinevin clear. Mm. Simple or obvious, maybe, but it's clear what needs to be done, how to do it. Why would we have a learning framework there? So I would avoid it there. Yeah, because I was going to ask about the hardware side of things, because I've been involved in a number of different projects that have taken in hardware and software, whether it's something like the Kindle, for example. You can do a certain amount of that agile, but then there are points in time where you have to create essentially a gold standard of this is the device that's getting shipped. I mean, obviously, you also have other companies at scale that tend to like to wrap things in their traditional prints framework, which actually I'm sure you must have seen stuff like that at BT. Well, yes. So there's like two conversations on that. One is actually I work currently with a very famous hardware designer. Mm-hmm. They don't manufacture, but they do the designs that other mm. people manufacture their intellectual property. And they're using Agile to a greater or lesser extent on most things. So some things in those other spaces, certain Agile practices become more useful, certain ones become less useful, and things like sprint length 
become really important. Like, I can't yeah. do something in two weeks. <laughs> I've got to get it prefabbed in China. I physically can't do it in two weeks. Yeah. Maybe longer sprints are needed. So that's one conversation in there and helping those industries, not teaching them. They know more about their space than we do. Mm. So who am I to go in there and tell them how to do their work? I can't. All I can do is show them techniques and they need to think whether they can use them or not. They pull rather than push. Having said all that, there is lots of these ideas, even going into very hard areas, areas of great physicality. And I think hard tech is actually quite flexible compared to some other things out there that are really physical. But then the other part of that conversation was people wrapping it with other stuff. Which is just agony. <laughs> like the old Prince 2 thing that used to be popular a million years ago that is no longer popular, thank God. You still see it on job applications every yeah, now and again. Yeah, but you see everything <laughs> on job applications. It's like, I want you to have 40 years experience with this thing that's been around three years. 40 years experience in HTML. <laughs> so think Prince 2, UK government best practice. So anything called UK government best practice is instantly worth a laugh, isn't it, really? <laughs> I did Prince 2 back in 2004, I think. I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed the course. But a lot of those ideas are deeply buried into traditional project thinking. Some stuff for Prince 2 I use to this day. I use management by exception, which comes from Prince 2, the idea you own it till you can't own it. It's a really good idea. By the time you were doing Prince 2 in 2004, you were already doing Agile. So did that change your perspective on things? Well, I can tell you why I went on that course. It's because my boss was booked on it. And then a space came up in America to do certified Scrum Master training, one of the courses out there. So he (laughs) went and did that and said, hey, do you want my place on the Prince 2 course? And I went, yeah, sure, lovely. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, how can we combine these things? So I spent a lot of time 10, 15 years ago trying to become like a world-leading expert in Insta and Scrum working together, right? And then I realized, don't. (laughs) Actually, there's nothing in it that you need that isn't already in something like Scrum, which is like a minimum viable product. What mm. some people were doing 15 years ago was they were using some Prince2 objects in Scrum so they could interface with other Prince2 projects. So mm. like backlog items were, oh, PID, <laughs> create a PID for another team or something. Mm. Or some people had them to give them assurance. So they would have some of those tools, almost like stabilizers on a bike. So they would use some of the Prince2 products to give them a little bit of assurance as they're changing over to an agile approach. But both of those are short-term tactics. Mm. It's not actually a long-term need. I wrote all this stuff, put it on the internet. It was very popular for a couple of years, and then people just didn't do Prince2. (laughs) So it sort of faded away a lot. They've got their own agile now, Prince2. Yeah, I've been seeing that recently. Part of the course now. Someone sent me an email years ago saying, do you want to be involved in doing a Prince2 agile? And I said, oh, I'll give you some advice if you want it. Never got back to me. (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea where it came from. That's another book you nearly wrote, I think, Nigel. <laughs> Is it here? I wrote a book. I wrote a book eight years ago when my daughter was just about to be born, and that's why it stopped. You didn't try and do that, Agile, did you? The child? Uh, as well. I don't know. The original deliveries were Big Bang, but the rest of it is very iterative. But I wrote this book eight years ago, never published it, because daughter was born but also things rapidly became superseded so Mm. stuff i was writing about people came out with ideas backing them up and i was worried about publishing it because it was all hypothesis things i've seen my opinions not Mm. like good research behind it so i was nervous and then people came up with good stuff that verified it but of course it's too late but the damning indictment of the agile space at the moment which i don't want to damn but i'm in it is that there are lots of people publishing books exactly like that Mm. loads of opinion no evidence Mm. you don't know that though they're like oh i'm a very famous agile thought leader and you're like where (laughs) 
Where did you lead that thought? Well, you can't tell from the book cover. Book cover's nice. <laughs> it's got like a hand holding another hand or something. There's something you're not supposed to judge a book by, but I can't quite remember what it is. Yeah, judge a book by its contents. <laughs> but the trouble is then you've got to buy the books. They've won anyway. But yeah, I think my, I'm not going to say it's morals, maybe it was fear, but I didn't want to put something out there that was all hypothesis that hadn't been verified. Mm. And it turns out people will buy and eat hypothesis as long as it sounds good. That's you. You can't have your own facts again, isn't it? Really? Yeah. I mean, really, you should have that evidence backed up. You're right. It is a pervasive problem. <laughs> so that's why I like the Scrum Alliance, because the Scrum mm. Alliance is a non-profit. And that's the key thing for me. They're not trying to make money out of this stuff. They're trying to build a community. They've got loads of money, funny enough because it turns out if you support people and help them and nurture them and grow a community you generate revenue but as a non-profit they don't need it they spend it back mm. on the community they'll give it to groups they'll give it to clubs they're redistributing that wealth to build the agile community when a lot of other things in the agile space are businesses designed to exploit to mine money out of organizations mm. again i'm not a hippie or anything my business <laughs> is a business it pays me money so i'm exploiting i guess people or i'm at least taking money from those companies but i like that i'm part of the alliance which has a broader appeal and a broader purpose than merely teaching people scrum or using this stuff for cash mm. and i like that and that feels good to me the trouble is Agile isn't the Rebel Alliance anymore, is it? Agile isn't the little startup. If you look at LinkedIn, Agile is basically this. You can't see if you're listening to this, but I've got myself a little toy Darth Vader. <laughs> Agile's all about that. It's all about the big villain these days. You know, a lot of people hate it because it's so big and popular or big and unpopular. And I think some things out in the space do not exactly disprove that hypothesis. It's the misconceptions, isn't it, as we previously talked about? There are an awful lot. I think it would be great if we can try and figure out a way to return back to those core values, which I think you mentioned, because if you are approaching those core values and you are flexible with how you approach things, then you can even do that scaled side of things as well and do it effectively. I still want to stay in the weeds a little bit here, though. I've got plenty more questions that are like that, because in terms of how you've evolved things over the years, how do you deal with the fact that We've now got huge advances in technology in terms of continuous delivery, even just TDD and extreme programming practices, which I know have been around for a long time. But how does that interrupt the flow for you? Well, this has been interesting for me. So I always used to get these, but in the real world, in the real world, how do you do this stuff? But in the mm. real world, you know, and that's why Scrum is quite popular because it's quite easy to do in the real world. And some mm. of the original software development stuff from extreme programming was a lot harder to do in the real world. But I just heard today, someone posted on Twitter, there was a software developer on one of the Martian probes and they used TDD on it. Mm. So it's not just in the real world, but now agile software development is on the real worlds. <laughs> TDD is currently sat on Mars, which I think is a great example of the ultimate safety critical system, you know, probe mm. going up. I really like that the engineering's got better. Some teams can really do some great stuff now that they were very limited on doing 20 years ago. I think the problem is not enough people are doing that. Mm. Not enough people are actually genuinely embracing those techniques. Test-driven development is still a hard sell for many people. It is. There's a real change in dynamics. But for me, that's brilliant. With those techniques, we've seen good evidence of the success of the techniques and good quality code bases. Again, maybe it's because I'm doing less in-deep coaching, so I'm not getting to those horror spots. But I am seeing less bad code mm. in my experiences you know less bad technology what i am seeing is lots of still bad politics 
to organisations mm. being a bit like Game of Thrones. You know, it's still a bit like that. I had hoped we'd get away from that by now and be a little bit more inclusive, which is getting better. But it's interesting in terms of technology. From our world, we really want to see a bigger push on that. Organisations treating it seriously, those approaches. And some companies really are, but some aren't. And it's almost going dual track, it seems, these days, where like certain companies are going straight ahead with these great ideas and certain ones aren't. But in terms of Scrub, it's been great. Now we don't have mm. to wait till the end of a sprint. Now we can launch every two days. It's great stuff. Yeah, but I feel like there's a certain number of people that are still embedded in the, no, no, the Scrum Guide that I read, however many years ago, says shippable increments at the end of a sprint. Well, the Scrum Guide's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> I just dislike it immediately. Having a specification is great. But if you keep referring back to the specification and turning off your brain, that's awful. And people do it. They go, oh, the guide says you could. It's like, oh, just like, think. Now, what the guide says may be true, but can you work out why it says it from base principles? Why would it say that? That's why, for me, I've been trying to push the Scrum Alliance to expand on it. So the Scrum Guide, if you don't know, a famous document, about 15 pages, written by the two inventors of Scrum. I did air quotes there. <laughs> it's a very light specification that can't be implemented on its own. It's a very high-level specification, just to make sure everyone, when they say Scrum, knows what they're talking about. It's like a map, a map of Bristol where I live. What we need is a country walks guide. Not to tell you exactly how to walk. How could anyone tell you that? That's too much. But just some nice pathways to go on around the world that is Scrum. And so I think we need a bit more of that to offer support to this. So that someone who doesn't know, we can say, okay, the guide says, the minimum, by the way, is launched by the end of the sprint, not the maximum. <laughs> the minimum is mm. launched by the end of the sprint. And then explain it and say, ah, here's a little bit of an explanation for you. The reason why we do that is to have a minimum set, not a maximum set. You can launch it every second if you want. And just have somewhere with that little bit of background narration. Context is king. I'm doing a presentation on that the next month, one of these online summits, the Virtual Agile Summit. And I think that sort of extra context would be really useful in the Agile space. And I don't know who can build it beyond the Scrum Alliance, but the Scrum Alliance is busy and we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And so building that type of material may not be high up their backlog at the moment. You have no idea how pleased you've made me with that comment on the Scrum Guide, because I've had so many arguments. <laughs> it changes. So it's like, how can you possibly... Okay, it's useful, I use it, but I'm never going to explain something as if the guide is the Bible. Well, that's the important thing. And that's why I'm lucky, why I've been doing it so long, because I can say, well, oh, sprints are going between two to four weeks. Mm. There's no official minimum length on sprints these days, mm. but I wouldn't go below two weeks myself, having worked in sprints. <laughs> so I personally would not like to do one week cycles myself it would be mm. a bit hot so how can i recommend it to anyone else when i started scrumming all sprints were calendar months mm. that's what they were you go any length sprint you like as long as it's a month over years that changed to two to four weeks mm -hmm. but it was only many years later i was at a conference i won't name on this but I could name but i won't one of the people who were involved with the first easel team gave a presentation and he said do you know why our sprints were that long like a calendar month and we all went, no, he goes, it's because I came in the office every four weeks to give them advice. <laughs> and so that's why the sprints are four weeks long. Wow. And it's the perfect example of a good practice for them being turned into a universal truth for everyone. And then everyone realizing that actually it's not a universal truth at all. It's actually just something that worked for them. I do scrum with great discipline, but I do it with great discipline because I know why we do things. Mm. I'm fundamental on the fundamentals. I know why we do things, and I like to be very open-minded on the stuff that isn't core. Mm. For me, self-organizing teams, critical, core. Mm. Reviewing and retroing, core. But how do we retro? 
that's an option. There's some good practices there. So we've got some options there to how we change how we do retrospectives or daily scrums. I think talking every day with your colleagues is core. How you do it, there's a lot of flex there. Mm. And so again, understanding that flexibility, like classic things like standing up is not core. It's not. You don't have to stand up. But if you do stand up, you keep it short. <laughs> so it's mm. a really good idea. And so it's making that to people saying, okay, it's not fundamental, but there's some good stuff here. And that's what I would try and use that guide for. But if ever you find someone just holding it up and saying the guide says X, they're arguing from authority. It's a debating fallacy. You know, can we discuss why we're doing that and not just what we're doing? I think that's a really salient point. How do we approach things in a more pragmatic way? So just to finish up, because we've taken plenty of your time Mm -hmm. today, what is next, do you think, for us in the industry, I suppose, but also for yourself? For me, I have no idea. Every time I ever had to do in work, what's your future development plan? It turned out to be complete lies. So (laughs) at the time I believed it, but it just went off somewhere else. Things come up, unexpected Mm. things happen unexpectedly, but they happen all the time. So how can you plan for them? In terms of agile, I think Scrum's going to get slimmer Mm -hmm. and get applied in more contexts. I think we'll see more bad actors in this agile space selling things that aren't necessarily good for you, but a good sell. And maybe those bad agents or bad actors aren't deliberately evil or anything, but mm. doing it through ignorance. I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see a move against agile because you always get a move against everything. I don't know what it'll be, but there'll be some sort of swing against it like there always is with everything. And then there'll be a swing back because there always is with everything. <laughs> because <laughs> these things back and forth swinging. I'll see new ideas coming up. There's more new ideas, more than ever, but they need cultivating and growing. I think we're getting thousands of individuals with their individual frameworks and none are gaining traction. Hopefully some ideas in that space will gain some more traction and add to the greater body of knowledge that we have. Remember the Agile Manifesto, the first line is, we are uncovering better ways. You know, not we have uncovered, mm. not we have the answer, but we're still uncovering. And I think as long as that Mm. culture stays in place, people will be okay. What I would like to see is more of these principles applied outside of software, but not necessarily Scrum applied outside of software. So that seems to be the main vanguard in Agile outside of IT. But I think there's some deeper patterns in what we do that actually would work far better than, let's say, a daily Scrum and different spaces and bringing that more collaborative more cross-functional, more empowered, more self-organizing principles to wider ranges of work. That's what I hope to see in the future. I hope to see that sort of thing in politics, to be honest. I'm going to go full out. (laughs) Let's go full out. I would like to see some of those concepts and ideas in the world of politics, because politics seems to be very waterfall and very, very Game of Thrones and feudal. And I think some of the agile ideas and principles can be really nicely applied there, I think. Yeah, can you imagine... We could actually deliver some great stuff. Great stuff, yeah. (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you very much for your time, Nigel. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again after all of these years. Thoroughly enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it. I've now got to go see to my stakeholders and make sure they have some value-added increments delivered to them to increase the customer satisfaction. I've got to go feed my kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers, Nigel. Bye.